0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, it's very simple. What did he know? When did he know it? And why did he feel it was okay to vote on it? I think those three questions are really at the heart of what will be happening today in Ottawa as Prime Minister Trudeau is set to testify in front of the House of Commons Finance Committee to answer those questions, and I'm sure... A whole lot more, all sorts of different variations, probably on the same topic there. So, yes, for a couple of hours, he will be testifying today, and you will hear much of that testimony live coming up on the Jill Bennett Show. But let's find out more about what it sounds like is going to be probably a lot of fireworks, but of an explosive afternoon. So, joining us now is Global National Ottawa correspondent Abigail Beeman. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. Now, what are we expecting to hear from the Prime Minister?
0: Well, you know, I'll start with reminding people about the finance minister's uh, testimony, Bill Morneau, when he sat in front of the very same committee and dropped a bombshell in his opening comments about a $41,000 check uh, repayment to we for travel expenses. So uh, a government source tells me that we're not expecting anything like that from the prime minister today. And I think that's a question a lot of people have is, is there going to be new information uh, coming from the prime minister? According uh, to the source that I spoke with, uh, no, we're not expecting a lot of new information or, or much or any new information. And that's because they believe really that everything is on the table. So we are expecting the Prime Minister to repeat his apology. He will make an open. He will, first of all, appear virtually. He will make an opening statement. Uh, and then there will be time for for questions from the MPs on the committee. We're expecting him to repeat that apology, saying he should have recused himself from cabinet discussions. Uh, and he didn't. But certainly there are many, many questions that the opposition have. The big question right now, this morning, the day of the testimony, is how long will the Prime Minister appear for? And that was a a developing story that broke yesterday evening as the committee uh, voted to extend his one-hour testimony to three hours. We're still waiting for the Prime Minister's office to respond. This is a a voluntary act here, uh, and we're still waiting to hear whether the Prime Minister's office will green light that three hours, which of course makes a huge difference when you factor in that open. Statement too, in terms of how much time uh, a, a MPs and specifically mm-hmm. opposition MPs who aren't so friendly uh, have <laughs> to ask their questions.
1: Right. Now, is this something that is being done willingly? Was he forced to appear?
0: that's a good question. no, it's it's absolutely willingly uh, voluntarily. the Prime Minister's office put out a statement last night, you know, in response to this breaking call for a longer um, testimony saying that you know he looks forward to appearing uh, at the committee tomorrow. this is certainly something that is being done uh, voluntarily. Uh, you, it's so uncommon for a sitting prime minister to testify at committee. you know the requests don't come in uh, that often, but they but they are voluntary uh, when they do.
1: Okay, so a couple of hours, and and his chief of staff is also testifying.
0: Right. So as it stands right now, what has been officially scheduled is an hour for the prime minister and an hour for his chief of staff. The request that we're waiting to see what exactly will happen is three hours for the prime minister, two hours for his chief of staff. So definitely would change uh, the scope of things this afternoon if that gets approved, but we just don't know quite yet.
1: Okay. And now there's so many other aspects to the story. You touched a little bit there on finance minister Bill Morneau and what happened when he testified. But we also know that it seems to me as days go on. He's getting more and more entangled into this. What is the update with the ethics investigation?
0: That's right. That was a story that broke at the same time that the Finance Committee was meeting last night to discuss uh, the details. The Ethics Commissioner has is expanding his investigation into the Finance Minister. He is looking at two new sections of the Act that he wasn't looking at before. Those have to do with accepting gifts and with travel. And, of course, that $41,000 was a repayment for uh, for a trip. Now, those requests to broaden the investigation came from both the Conservatives and the New Democrats. But worth noting that perhaps this isn't a huge surprise since in his opening statement, Bill Morneau himself said, I've alerted the ethics commissioner to this new information about the, the check that he wrote that day. And he, Bill Morneau, asked the ethics commissioner uh, to look into it. So not a huge surprise there, but a confirmation certainly and a broadened uh, broadened investigation into the finance minister.
1: Right, because it's not good for him either, is it? Because we're talking about daughters on the payroll of the WE charity taking family trips as well in which he was a part of.
0: That's right. So one daughter who works for the organization, her contract is up in August. Another daughter who has appeared, uh, at some We events. And, uh, Bill Morneau, I would say, was pretty forthcoming in terms of his history with the We organization, uh, in terms of talking about how, uh, the We headquarters are in his riding. So he, you know, goes back uh, quite a few years with this organization. He, the other big piece of, of information that he put on the table in that meeting was that his family has it made two large donations. I think he, I think the quote was significant donations, fifty thousand dollars each, twice uh, donated to the WE organization, and these trips to Kenya uh, and to Ecuador. And the price tag of the trip—that forty-one thousand yeah. dollars was only the the part that hadn't been paid back. He, Bill Morneau had already paid fifty-two thousand dollars for those two he trips, was. and this was the rest of it. So we, we obviously a lot of money uh, on on the table, and still a lot of questions. You know about the ins and outs of his. Relationship uh relationship with with we. Um to that yeah. point when the Kielberger brothers testified uh in front of committee, they they made a point of saying that they had never spent any social time with the prime minister. They didn't have the prime minister's cell number, they hadn't shared a meal with the prime minister's family. But that was in a response to a question about both Bill Morneau and the Prime Minister, and they did not extend those comments about no social time to the finance minister. So I think there still are some questions to ask around that. Oh,
1: I think there is. That's- sure, for sure. Abigail, thank you. Thanks. That's Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent. More to come on that, so keep it tuned in right here for the very latest. Let's talk about the state of businesses in this country. There's a lot of them that are at risk from coast to coast. Here in BC in particular, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business says more than 20,000 small businesses in this province are at the risk of closure right now. Thousands already pretty much at the brink. To talk more about this, we're joined now by Dan Kelly, who's the president and CEO at the CFIB. Dan, thank you very much for being here. Good morning. But that is a huge number. Does that just encompass businesses right across the board?
2: It is. Every sector of the economy is affected by this. Uh, Of course, some affected more than others. Uh, It is businesses in the arts, recreation facilities, uh, private sector businesses in, in, say, the film industry, uh, tourism, hospitality. Those are the ones that are most affected, where we're expecting casualty rates in the tens of thousands across the country. That number you mentioned, 21,000 in B.C., is almost 160,000 businesses at risk of permanent closure directly as a result of COVID-19. Uh, and 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 that's a huge huge concern to all of us.
1: Yeah, I could. Yeah, of course it is. Is this what kind of timeline are we looking at here? Though, Are some of them kind of waiting to see what the next couple of months hold?
2: Yeah, you know, um, we've reflected on this, and there's a lot of what I'm calling dead businesses walking businesses that that haven't made the decision to shut down. They haven't they haven't closed their doors or filed bankruptcy papers. But essentially, they're not expected to reopen. If you can believe it, at this point in the recovery, only 62% of small businesses across Canada are fully open. Uh, That means that 38% are partially closed or permanently closed. And some of them just haven't tied it up because, of course, even bankruptcy proceedings are being delayed, by COVID-19. And many are wondering what they're going to do uh, as their rent bills come due. We've deferred a lot of expenses as business owners, and, and some of those bills are now coming home. Uh, as a result we're expecting some to in the months ahead uh, move over and, and and declare bankruptcy or just decide to wind themselves down
1: so when do you think we'll start to see that will it be when the wage benefit subsidy runs out will it be when the rent deferrals you know no longer happen what's going to what's going to be the tipping point here
2: we're expecting that the fall is pretty ugly, but this is likely to extend even into next year uh, as businesses try to sort out whether they're going to be able to get any forgiveness or some of the. Hopefully. Hopefully government has issued many good rents, many good programs to help support them. There's the Canada, the Canada emergency business Account SIBA accounts, which have helped many, uh, the wage subsidies you just mentioned, that's been a, a reasonably solid program and has been extended now until the end of December. But for, but the rent support program is just a complete mess. It's just not getting money to the businesses that desperately need it. As a result, when those bills come due, that's when we think businesses are throwing the towel. Six. 50% of our members 50% of small business owners said that they think that they're going to be it's going to be 6 months or more before they can turn a profit. So every small almost every small business that you're walking by today is losing money as they open but they're doing that hoping for a brighter day.
1: What would it take to help some of these businesses, Dan?
2: <laughs> well, the two things. One, government really does need to fix that rent support program. They need to get the support directly to the tenant right now. If you have a 70% revenue loss or more, you can apply and get up to 75% of your rent reduced, which is great, except that your landlord has to apply on your behalf. You're not allowed to access any of the money. So that would be one fix. The other is something that that your listeners can help with, and that is to, to support the small independents in their business. Look, during the pandemic and the emergency phase, all of us were forced to go to big box stores to, to buy anything yeah. because they were the only game in town. Now that those independents are open. We're urging consumers to get back out there and visit, safely visit, of course, those small independents that are in their backyard.
1: Is there going to be any kind of a difference, do you think, about recovery from province to province? Like we know here in BC, uh, there's a lot more stuff that's open than some of the other provinces.
2: You know, BC did come out of this in, in better shape in, in many respects. But there's no province that's going to be immune from this. And and we still see large numbers of businesses not at peak levels. Only a quarter of small businesses, and this includes British Columbia, have sales at normal levels. So three-quarters of businesses, even those that are open, uh, unfortunately, are just in, in really, really rough shape right now. They need sales. I mean, no business owner wants to live on subsidy. They want to live on sales. But uh, But, you know, physical distancing is still spooking a lot of people. Understandably so. Uh, do call your if you're not going out of your house. Do call your independent check to see if they have an online presence. That'll really help.
1: Right. So it's really up to those people who do have their jobs and are shopping out there to you know spread that money around.
2: You got it. And and look, the the tourism industry has had uh, a particularly rough time with the absence of international tourists. But there are industries. That, that, you know, I worry most about uh, restaurants, hospitality. It's great that there is takeout and, and delivery options now, uh, but the absence of in-store dining in, in, in a lot of places or doing that in a restricted level is really hurting a, long, a lot of, of independent businesses. Uh, so the hospitality service sector, these businesses really need your help.
1: All right, we'll see what we can do. Dan, thanks so much for your time. Anytime. Dan Kelly, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Uh, they have been surveying members and they say about over 20,000, about 21,000 or so small businesses in this province alone. Are at the risk of closure right now. Thousands already at the brink. So when will be this make or break time? Well, likely in the months ahead. Likely this fall, when the all the kind of different government programs run out. Uh, the couple of months that people were trying to get by. Well, that's going to run out as well. Now, I'm, I'm, that's tough times out there for a lot of small business owners. And if you would like to tell your story about that, what you're going to do? Are you going to have to close your business? The thing that you have been working so hard for. Do you just? Is there no other way out? Or are you going to? try to muddle through, let me know. Send me at cknw.com. Well, we're talking about nickel. I know, funny, right? Nickel back, talking about nickel. Nickel is a critical component in electric vehicles. This we know. And Tesla CEO Elon Musk has said that he is looking for some kind of carbon neutral supplier of nickel because global demand is really increasing. So our show contributor, Nikki Reitmeyer, had a chance to speak with the head of a company that's called Canada Nickels, Mark Selby.
3: And she wanted to talk about their plans to provide just that. So, what is the problem right now that needs to be fixed? Why is Elon Musk saying that it's time to look elsewhere for nickel?
4: Yeah, so you know the thing that you know his comments are really pointing on that I don't think a lot of people understand is that you know the bulk of the growth in nickel supply over the last five years and the bulk of the, the growth that's coming has been largely from a product called nickel pig iron, which is produced um, in Indonesia and in and, and, and some other locations, and in, in these areas it is produced using coal-fired electricity, and and it's one of these products that uses a huge amount of electricity to uh, to be made, and so as a result, you know, the nickel that gets made in these areas, you know, you're looking at 25 to 30 tons of coal uh, per ton of nickel, you know, which translates to nearly, you know, 90 tons of CO2 emissions per ton of, uh, you know, ton of nickel. So, you know, people who buy a Tesla, you know, to help the environment don't want to end up having three to four tons of CO2 strapped to the car effectively, um, along with that nickel. So, you know, we're in a very fortunate position um, that we have a deposit that naturally absorbs CO2 when it's exposed to air. It's just a, it's a, you know, spontaneous mineral process that's been very well documented. Um, we're in an area just north of Timmins that has lots of hydroelectric power. Um, so there's, you know, in the parts of the process where we do use a lot of electricity, all of it is zero carbon hydroelectricity. And then the third piece is, you know, the Timmins area has, has uh, you know, has a lot of experience and history with downstream mineral processing. So it's, you know, set of processes they're very comfortable with. So the combination of all three of those things allows us to be able to be in a position to, you know, really talk about the potential of producing zero carbon products. So that's why we went through trademark, uh, those terms, set up a separate subsidiary and, uh, you know, are going to be pushing very hard on that front. Uh, over the coming months.
3: Well, what kind of technology is involved in producing zero-carbon nickel? Why isn't anyone else really doing this yet?
4: This deposit, and I was involved in a, in, in my previous life um, with a deposit that's very similar to it. It's sort of a new group of of, of new type of um, nickel deposits that are larger scale, lower grade. There's been a few of these um, projects developed globally, um, but they they're they're in places where you don't have the hydro you know the hydroelectricity nearby, so it's really not um, it, it's not necessarily the option for it. I've been around the nickel business now for two decades. And realized that you know this this pollution issue is a real issue, um, and so it's something they have been very focused on. And so again, it, it's a combination of sort of experience and insight in terms of where the market's going. You know, combined with you know with this type of deposit that has this you know e- you know unique intersection of properties in terms of you know rock that absorbs co2 zero carbon power and a location you know um, where you can build a build a downstream processing plant.
3: how much of a game changer could this be for the Canadian mining industry
4: I think you know what the industry has to realize is that, you know there's an increasing number of people who look at the co2 emissions are involved in, in, in the products and how the products are used and you know the, the, they they are as aghast um, at that kind of co2 footprint you know, as, as everybody is today, looking back 40, 50 years ago at mining and industry, you know, when they used to just basically, you know, dump whatever they produced into rivers, streams and dumped whatever it is into the air completely untreated. So, you know, w- you know we need to do this now. You know, a lot of mining companies have sort of nebulous 2050 timeframes, but you know, the market wants the products now, the consumers want the products now. And so, you know, we as an industry just need to find solutions, um, you know, to get people those products. So I think this is a big step in the right direction.
3: I should ask you then, what is the timeline for this project? You What comes next?
4: Yeah, so we're, we're basically advancing the, the project itself. We're moving it um, very quickly, again, because it's very similar to a project I developed in, in a past life. So we're doing all the engineering studies over the next next couple of years here, and uh, have to have those done by the end of 2020. Permitting process involved, which will take some time. Um, you know, but we're looking looking to be in production by the, the mid 2020s, which is where you know electric vehicle production you know will really start to ramp up and really start to need large, large quantities of, of new nickel. So, um, you know, we want to be in position to take advantage of that, and you know, we'll be doing all the work on the net zero. Uh, carbon solutions, um, you know, alongside our work on the underlying project. So, you know, we hope to have, you know, whatever um, process plants in place, uh, you know, at the same time so that they're ready to go along with the mine uh, at that time and, and again, be able to deliver those net zero carbon products that the the market's uh, desperately looking for.
3: Well, Mark, thank you so much. It was really interesting stuff. Oh, no, Thank you. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk in this
1: pandemic and the lockdown about relationships and how they have been faring. Some of them work out, some of them do not. Well, at least for humans anyway, that's the way it has been. Researchers at Western University in London, Ontario, have teamed up with relationship researchers all over the world to try to apply machine learning to the massive amount of data that they have collected during this time. So our show contributor, Nikki Reitmeyer, spoke with psychology professor, Samantha Joel, about what they found. So
3: going into this research, what was the goal? What were you guys trying to uncover?
5: Sure. Well, relationship science has... Sort of exploded in recent decades. There's been a lot of research um, looking at relationship quality and what predicts people being happy in their relationships. And each study tends to look at only a handful of variables at a time. So, you know, one study will look at communication, and another study will look at conflict, and another study will look at some personality measures. And so, what we wanted to do was Put all of the variables that have been uncovered into one big study and try to directly compare them and see which ones turn out to be uh, the best. It's going to give them a head to head matchup.
3: And this was a really big study. You guys had a ton of data here. Can you tell me a bit about the data collection process and then the very unique method that you use for data analysis?
5: Sure. So this was a collaboration uh, among 86 relationship researchers uh, from 29 different research labs. So what we did was we reached out to uh, other relationship labs that we thought might have the kind of data that we needed for this project, and we just invited them to share their data with us and be a part of the project. Uh, and so each data set was collected by a different team of researchers who were interested in different things and therefore had included different measures. Uh, and so then when we combined them all, we used uh, machine learning, uh, specifically the random forest message, to use all of the measures in each study to try to predict relationship quality. Uh, and then we meta-analyzed across all the studies. And that way we were able to look at hundreds of measures uh, and see which ones tended to be the most robust predictors of relationship quality, and also how much variance we could predict overall.
3: And what were your findings? What was the most important trait?
5: So the, the most important variables were features of the relationship itself, uh, such as how committed you think your partner is to the relationship, how satisfied you think they are, uh, how much you appreciate your partner, conflict was important, and also sexual satisfaction. Uh, So those predicted about 45% of the variance in relationship quality. Uh, Traits predicted about 19% of the variance. So uh, individual differences like um, how neurotic you are or uh, your well-being or how prone to negative emotions you are. But those variables didn't add any additional variance over the relationship variables. So really, it just all came down to perceptions of the relationship and judgments about the relationship uh, that seemed to really be driving relationship quality.
3: Was there anything that you thought going into this was going to be a really important variable for couples that actually ranked quite low? I
5: thought that demographic variables would perform better. Things like income, uh I was very surprised that uh, income did, didn't didn't do well um, because you might, you might expect that having more resources is better for relationships. Uh, gender didn't seem to factor in, even as a moderator. There's a lot of research on gender and gender supposed to be important to us, I'm surprised that it didn't emerge. Um, yeah, I'd say those were the two most surprising ones for me.
6: There will be no tournaments, there will be no assemblies, there will be no large group gatherings um, where uh, people from outside areas would, would be coming together.
1: So that was Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about this plan for returning to school in September, which we have been talking about all morning long. And I know for parents, you're still trying to work this out. You have so many questions. We are going to be talking to the Education Minister, Rob Fleming, coming up just after the 7.30 news. Uh, So wait for that if you've got more questions. And you can also send those to me, simi at cknw.com. But what was clear yesterday is that it's not going to be the same kind of school experience for many students in September. They may be wanting to get everybody back in class, but that doesn't mean they're going to be doing all the things that they would normally do at school, like playing some kind of sports. That's an integral part of the high school experience, for sure, for so many people. It doesn't sound like that's going to happen this year, though. So we're going to talk more about that now. Jordan Abney joins us, the executive director of BC School Sports. That is the governing body that oversees high school athletics in BC. Jordan, thanks for being here.
7: Good morning, Cindy. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: Well, I think a lot of parents have a lot of questions about this. So at this point, are we thinking that this fall is there's going to be no sports at all?
7: Yeah. I mean, we, we've been working on a return to play plan for the last number of months. And, um, you know, we were disappointed, obviously, by the announcement yesterday. We, uh, we were sort of learning about it at the same time as everyone else, but we're also um, optimistic that we will continue to work with both the uh, education ministry, as well as the health office and, I I think there's ways that we can try and have some uh, school sports. Obviously, we've got 19 different sports, so some are certainly lower risk than others. So we're going to explore all our options in terms of what we can do to uh, show that we can or demonstrate that we can offer some sports safely. But at at this point, I think uh, at least at the start of the school year, it's looking like it's going to be a little bit uh, on hold to start.
1: Right. I was wondering, is there certain sports that might be better than others, maybe intramurals versus not playing against other schools?
7: Yeah. So, you know, I think like most parents and, and even people in education, they're all trying to sort through what this means in, in real life. And so, you know, I think it looks like within those those education groupings or cohorts that there may be an option for for some physical activity. Uh, at this point, inter-school support looks like that's probably off the table, but we're going to try and support our member schools as much as we can to provide some resources to help them uh, provide as much normalcy and, and activity as, as we can for those schools. So there was a study that just came out of Wisconsin, actually, that uh, was just published. And it looked at uh, the mental health of their student-athletes in, in that state. And it was shocking. About 68% of over 3,200 student-athletes that were sampled showed, you know, Levels of anxiety and depression that would typically require medical intervention, which is up about thirty-five to forty percent from from normal, and that's just due to the pandemic. So, right. we know that school sport, and not just school sport, but you know, music and band and drama and, and those type of things, are an integral part of that school experience. It really creates a, a sense of belonging and a, a sense of purpose and we need to make sure that we can do, we're offering as much as we safely can in those
1: areas. Right, is that the guiding principle? Do you think here, Jordan, I know a lot of people have said, oh, it's too much to send all the kids back to school. But it seems to me we are getting a growing amount of evidence that shows not having kids or as many kids possible back in school is also detrimental.
7: Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, if you look at Dr. Henry and, and Minister Fleming's message, like they're obviously, they're very cognizant of that. And they're trying to do... Um, they're trying to do what's best to keep kids safe, and and we're totally on board with that. Um, but I think there is there is you know more and more evidence pointing to the need for some of these greater connections and co curricular activities that students you know value and and bring so much importance and, and significance to their you know school experience that in a lot of cases you know it, it engages a student to be part of their school community and engage in their academic studies. And, um, you know, we, we need to make sure that we're doing that. And, and right. so I think, like I said, at the start, there's, there are some activities that I just don't think we're going to be able to offer safely. And that's just the reality of some of those sports. But we do have a number that I, I think we, we can offer. Um, and so we're going to try and work with the ministry and the health office and see what we can get put in place. And, and we'll go from there.
1: Right. So what is the timeline like for that then, Jordan? What are the next steps here?
7: Yeah, so um, I haven't spoken to the minister's office in, in a couple months. Um, so, you know, I think they've they've had their hands full. So we'll be reaching out to them and saying, um, you know, here's some of the work that we've, we've been working on and we'd like to explore this. Uh, whether that sort of September 8th the flag drops, uh, I would be su- surprised if that's the case. Um, but, you know, we're hopeful that, you know, with some dialogue and some education and some discussion, we'll be, you know, if we can offer you know, six of our sports or, you know, whatever the number may be that uh, can be done safely and still sort of align with the principles and, and safety that they have um, put in place. And I think we we want to do that. So I'm, I'm hoping by, you know, early to mid-fall, we will have some indication uh, about what the rest of the school year will look like.
1: Right. Okay. So just, it sounds like patience, right? Like, it's not all going to be there in September, but just give a little time here.
7: That's the hope, right? And and, uh, hopefully, you know, our curve will. We've had a couple, you know, bumps lately. I guess you could call them, and hopefully, that will smooth out, which will give everybody a little bit more confidence in in trying to um, expand a little bit. And yeah, I think it's like I said, it's really important that we get kids back into school and and back into some um, normalcy, and, and that includes those co curricular activities as much as we safely can.
1: So, do you have any advice then, Jordan, for parents? How can they help out? Can they be a part of this process? But what do they need to know?
7: Well, um, I think just be aware of what's what's going on in terms of what's at their school, and and speak to their administration and, and athletic director about you know options in the short term to increase just physical activity and, and mental health. Uh, And then anything that can be done to sort of support the effort in terms of bringing um, some school sport back. Um, You know, I think we'll, we'll learn more in the coming weeks as we enter these discussions and, and see where we're at. We may need some support at that point, but um, I, I mean, Minister Fleming, he's, he's, He's pretty aware, I think, of what's going on, and and Dr. Henry is a a pretty impressive person. So I think they're aware of that. It's just uh, we need to do a little bit more education with them in terms of how we can actually do it safely.
1: Yeah, it's kind of uncharted territory here, isn't it? Because like BC seems to be a a little bit ahead in terms of these issues that we're dealing with.
7: For sure. I mean, there's no playbook on any of this, and so you know, even on the education side. uh, we work with a lot of educators and administrators, and even yesterday talking with a lot of our contacts, they're trying to figure out, okay, what does this mean even for you know school and and so there's a, there's a lot going on, and unfortunately, school sports you know a little bit farther down the list than than we would like, but understandably, there's a lot of other things that, that have to happen. so we will have those discussions and and uh, yeah, it's a little bit of patience and a little bit of um, you know hopefulness and and we'll we'll hopefully be back in some way um, without too much further delay
1: right. But- I think what you said something there was really important, and that is like there still has to be something for kids to do, right? The parents should still talk to the school, the PE teacher, or the coach, or whatever about what can my child do.
7: Absolutely, and and even if it's not inter school sport, which you know we we were you know we're the governing body, we support it obviously. Um, but even if it's something that is modified for you know just you know inter cohort competition or or a little something that you know, promotes physical activity, promotes the mental health, promotes the engagement, communication, and all those things that happen within co-curricular activities. We want to make sure that schools are doing as much of that as possible.
1: All right. Well, we'll try to help out with that. Jordan, thank you.
7: Thanks so much, Timmy. Appreciate it.
1: Anytime. That's Jordan Abney, Executive Director of BC School Sports. That is the governing body that oversees high school athletics in BC. So in this push to get everybody back to school in September, as you heard Jordan point out, don't expect tryouts and teams and everything or any kind of high school sports in September or October, but they are hoping to get some form of athletics up and running at some point, you know, getting into the school year. Now, I know for parents, it's hugely important for your kids to be involved in high school sports. Mine were, in particular, my oldest was. I don't know what she would have done, quite frankly, without high school basketball uh, or even track and field in elementary school. So for you, how important is it for your child to be a part of high school athletics?
5: These are recommendations from the provincial health office, and they haven't been examined by teachers to see how might it work at the school level. And so that opportunity hasn't hasn't been there yet because this is a, is a new concept. And so we have a lot of questions too about how it's going to work.
1: All right, that's BC Teachers Federation President Terry Mooring speaking with our Jill Bennett yesterday. Let's talk more about this plan to get kids and teachers back in school. Joining us now is Education Minister Rob Fleming. Thank you very much for being here.
8: Uh, good morning, Simi.
1: Now, we did hear from the BCTF yesterday saying they have concerns. Not They said not enough consultation. Some teachers are worried. How do you respond to that?
8: Yeah, I understand that. I think there's anxiety uh, throughout throughout uh, the province uh, all, all, in all walks of life about uh, COVID-19. And um, I think in part, uh, when you look at how well British Columbia has performed in bending the curve down, it's it's because we have taken... The very strict advice of Dr. Bonnie Henry uh, to heart and, and practiced our daily lives uh, in accordance with good scientific leadership. And, and that's the leadership that uh, outlined the new K 12 uh, health and safety guidelines yesterday. And I, I think that I do want to praise uh, Terry Mooring and her organization for working with the ministry and all the education stakeholders and getting a restart plan together that worked in June. We were the only place in Canada to have a province wide school reopening. We got 200,000 kids safely back to school. Her organization was instrumental in in helping that. And and there's still some questions, as she mentioned in your your introduction, about uh, how that works uh, going forward for September 8th. And uh, I think what I heard her say yesterday is that uh, they want a little bit of time to work with these guidelines further. We have a steering committee in place that I appointed. We do have that time, and we've got districts out now with the expectation to move forward to stage two, to, they're able to begin uh, uh, to further plan, I should say, uh, with their education teams in communities around B.C. And teachers and te- local teachers associations are going to be integral to that effort.
1: What changed, though, from the original framework, from what we heard a month or two ago, that placed a much greater emphasis on remote learning? And now we're saying everybody back in the classroom.
8: Oh, I think that was always the goal, was to uh, to, to bend the curve down and be able to re- return to in-class instruction when we could. We 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 weren't in that place in, in May and, and in June, um, and we are uh, looking forward to being in that place uh, come September. Um, look, we're not the only place that's trying to figure that out. You've seen uh, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia come out with plans very similar to us, organized around learning groups and cohorts of kids. Uh, as the safety unit within a school. You you can see uh, places like Denmark and Germany and now Ireland uh, bringing out a plan, very similar places to a very similar uh, set of uh, guidelines as as British Columbia uh, unveiled yesterday. So we're all trying to figure this out. Um, I guess, and you know, we did hear some dissatisfaction from the Teachers Federation about the hybrid learning model where you had part of the class in class and part of the class at home. That was a workload issue. We we did our best to manage that, um, but the return to in-class instruction, I think, is motivated by a number of things. One is the social and emotional well-being of kids, the learning loss we're dealing with. Look, a lot of kids didn't come back in June, and that's uh, a choice that, that we, we can all respect. Their families didn't feel they were ready. Uh, but come September 8th, it'll represent about 175 days of being out of the classroom in BC. That that really takes its toll for kids who are transitioning from elementary to middle school or middle school or high school, or uh, trying to uh, continue their education pathway to go to college or university.
1: So what about those parents who don't feel comfortable sending their children back to school?
8: Well, that's why we need to take the time uh, to explain the the new health and safety guidelines. This is different. Um, Just as we've uh, explained to British Columbians at each part of the province's overall uh, restart plan, we, we have moved forward. Uh, we have adjusted things as we as we've gone Um, living within this pandemic is about having very strong scientific leadership that that's been key to BC's success it's also about uh, learning to be adaptable Uh, things do change we learn as we go uh, but we keep uh, health and safety paramount and uh, you know uh, we developed uh, the plan that we released yesterday with uh, the BC school trustees association with superintendents principals and vice principals uh, we'll keep working with teachers. They've been critically important uh, informing us and posing some key questions to consider. But overall, the direction from the Provincial Health Office has, has, been, has been critically important to figure out how we can get kids back in school, do it safely, what kind of barriers to infection we can put in place that are effective. And, uh, and we went the extra mile on a few things. I mean, I think there, there's been a lot of discussion around masks. Uh, Dr. Henry has her view on that, and, uh, and, uh, but uh, a lot of teachers expressed the idea that they'd be more comfortable, would feel safer if they had access to masks and face shields, and, and that's part of the funding announcement that we, uh, that we brought in yesterday, and also right. funds for more janitorial staff in schools, which I think is critically important. Parents need to know that kind of thing, that government's making key investments in health and safety and cleanliness in our schools.
1: A lot of this work, though, will be done by the individual school districts around the province to make sure this is enforced. Will there be support for districts which perhaps can't handle it at the level that perhaps some other districts can? I've heard from a lot of parents of students with disabilities who already feel like they have been left out in the cold, making sure that each district can do this.
8: Yeah, I I mean, uh, look, the districts uh, have... We have 70,000 qualified, talented staff uh, out there in the field across uh, our 60 school districts, Um, and uh, we have uh, funds in place, for example. I think we've gone to 29,000 educational assistants, for example. We were about 19,000 just a few years ago. Um, I completely sympathize with parents who say, look, my kids... uh, uh, exceptional learning needs were not being met by the school system during the thus far during the pandemic and I think school districts have understood that uh, that's a priority that was outlined again uh, yesterday uh, we have kids that are falling behind um, all over the place but we have special uh, special needs learners that um, that parents are rightfully worried about they want to get back to their individual education plans and get the supports in place so, that's a big part of what we announced yesterday.
1: Is that the concern here? Is that what's driving a lot of this is that we are worried that kids are falling behind?
8: Absolutely. I think you've, you've heard people like Dr. Henry and her counterparts around the world and, uh, and and a lot of research happening right now that uh, kids have uh, suffered the effects of uh, relative isolation, uh, way too much screen time, uh, little structure in their lives. Um, you know, we've 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 put mental health resources in place to to try in anticipation that kids might need to reach out, and we've got helplines and all sorts of things. But, um, you know, the, the 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 adults in the school that that look over kids, we haven't had eyes on a lot of kids who come from difficult circumstances. Uh, you've heard you've heard people talk about, uh, you know, they're worried about family violence as tensions from unemployment and all sorts of things ratchet up, and that's why one of the first things we did was try and support. Uh, families that uh, that needed, for example, meal programs, or or families that can't afford devices and computers. We started a lending program. Um, those kind of things need to be uh, continually supported to, to be successful and to to help kids get reengaged in their education.
1: Okay, so next steps. Then, when can parents expect even more information?
8: I think you're going to see lots more happening in the in the coming weeks. Uh, we've got uh, district teams out there uh, working on things. Uh, the ministry has just put out a a request uh, for suppliers uh, to uh, allow districts to order all the things that are part of the health and safety guidelines. Uh, So there'll be lots of action happening on the ground. And um, we have asked districts to submit their local uh, plans uh, to the ministry by August 21st. And we'll uh, ask them to post those plans once they're approved by the ministry no later than August 26th, a full uh, full couple of weeks before the start of school.
1: All right. More to come. Uh, Mr. Fleming, thank you so much.
8: Thanks so much, Simi.
1: Rob Fleming, the Education Minister for the province.
5: Minister Garneau is saying that there have been no cases to date of in-flight transmission. So how do we make sure that that, that that continues? And I think all of these components working together create that safe travel experience.
1: It's Robin McVicker from the YVR Airport Authority. She was talking with our Jill Bennett yesterday. And they put into some uh, put into place yesterday some measures out at YVR to help people feel a bit more comfortable and also to protect travellers. Things like temperature checks. Those were mandated by Transport Canada. So joining us now to talk more about your safety when you do have to get on an airplane or decide to get on an airplane uh, is Claire Newell, president of Travel Best Bets. Good morning, Claire.
9: Uh, Good morning, Simi. Yeah, it's as of today that the um, CATSA are actually going to be screening starting at YVR, but they also were doing this at three other airports Calgary, Montreal, and Toronto. And I personally, um, I think it's such a great idea. I've been reading all sorts of reports, one um, that kind of came to mine was the IATA which is the International Air Transport Association's latest poll and they you know they've been carrying out these polls since the pandemic began and they get they get responses from travelers all over the world who've flown at least once in the past mm-hmm. the biggest concern or actually the top measure for people to feel safer when flying you know whether it's now or post pandemic yeah. is health screening at the airport 37% um So I think it's really important.
1: Do you, do you think it also reinforces to people that one, okay, you know, it's being looked after, that you do have to remember to kind of stay on guard, you have to remember to social distance, like all of that kind of plays together, doesn't it?
9: Yeah, it all plays together and it's all a part and parcel of that experience. It's going to take us, um, from the start of the travel process through and, uh, YVR, I have to say has been unbelievable. They have got fantastic measures in place. They've got a program called the Take Care program that you can read about on their website. But, um, the airlines have also been doing their part in this and it's going to be human error. It's going to be, you know, us lifting off our masks at times um, us not socially distancing in the lineups or at the gates, it, it's a lot of things that we have to take care of ourselves, remembering to take our sanitizing wipes that are actually handed to you on almost every aircraft now and wiping down the hard surfaces and remembering that when we're getting up to go to the restroom to maybe use a tissue to open the door um, and then a new one to open it on the way out of the bathroom door and then wash our hands with our hand sanitizer once we sit right. down again. So it's one of those things that's important. The most important thing, actually, Bonnie Henry reminded us all, I think it about, was about two, two weeks ago, she said, if you are not feeling well, do not travel. Now, I know that a lot of people are thinking, geez, okay, what is this? So first of all, people need to know that you're going to be denied boarding with a temperature of more than 38 degrees Celsius or some other red flag that's uncovered in their health questions. There are about six of them. They're online and you can read them. Basically, do you have a fever or a cough? Have you, do you have a um difficulty breathing. you know, the things that you're actually right. asked at many restaurants and things. So um the other thing that people are asked, well, what happens if I am denied boarding? And we here in Canada have, you know this national policy in place for travel and public health. So it's great. you and Air Canada mentioned this when they announced that they were doing this on May fifteenth. You can rebook at no cost. But one of the things you're going to have to provide if you do have a temperature on our denied boarding is a medical clearance to travel when you're ready to do it again.
1: So I would, assume, I would assume like a test or something, right? Like you had a test and you came back negative.
9: Exactly. Right. So um, the other thing when you're asked those questions, they if you provide false or misleading answers, yeah. that can result in a $5,000 fine. So right. you want to make sure that you check yourself. You know when you're not feeling that well. Now a fever, everyone feels crappy when you have a fever.
1: Right? Yeah. Well, you should or you should start to feel those things coming on, but a lot of people have just been we've been trained Claire for so long to just dismiss those little things, right? So it's hard to make people yeah. take them seriously. But I also want to talk about airline recovery here, like the industry itself. Ugh. I saw an ad yesterday for Southwest Airlines on one of the American stations. And I I could it was almost like they were throwing money at people to, you know, book with Southwest, they still keep the middle seat reserved, they said that is it until at least the end of September, Uh, free, like changeable flights all the time. And I thought, boy, this is like, if you were up to flying on some airlines, like on Southwest, it seems like there's some pretty good deals out there.
9: There are, and what's um, important about them? Not only people are scared to get on aircraft, they're scared to travel. So to get over that, there's going to be a couple of things that need to play out. There's going to to be have to be heck of a good deals, which you obviously saw. There's going to have to be flexible terms and conditions, and they're going to have to be, you know, so that you can change without penalties, so that you're not left holding the bag if there's if you're nervous or there's a second wave or whatever may happen. Right. Um, But you're also going to have to feel confident, so you're going to have to have, they're going to have to have clear health and safety protocols. And it's not just the airlines that are doing this, you're going to see this with hotels. Um But I can tell you, once the travel bans and restrictions are lifted, some of the deals that you're noticing aren't going to be there anymore. So it's really, they're looking for cash flow. Yeah. Um, and this is the way to do it. So you're right. There are some unbelievable, and they're into 2021. <laughs> so, I know. But you have to you be know, comfortable.
1: And that's the whole key yes. is that not everybody, including myself, is comfortable thinking about doing this. So, Claire, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Simi. Take care. It's been months now since we learned that 15 million people or so's health data was compromised in a cyber attack on life labs. And a lot of that information was just out there, could be used for all the wrong reasons. The medical lab chain is now going to court, if you can believe it, to try to block the privacy offices in B.C. and Ontario from investigating the full extent of this to find out what went wrong, could it have been prevented, uh, and really what happened. So we wanted to talk more about this now. So our go-to privacy expert, Anne Kavukian, joins us now, the Executive Director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre and former Three-Term Information and Privacy Commissioner for Ontario. Anne, thanks for being here.
6: Oh, my pleasure, Simi.
1: Does it surprise you that this thing is going to end up in court?
6: Well, I will actually, I was surprised because I, in all the terms I've been Privacy Commissioner and since then following the work of Privacy Commissioners, uh, it's taking the commissioner to court because of whatever information is contained in the report. And you can bet the Privacy Commissioners of B.C. and Ontario have done a stellar job, a fabulous job. They would not accidentally include anything in one of their uh, commissioner reports. Everything has been thought through and is legally sound. So whatever it is that Life Labs is objecting to must obviously be of concern to them that it might impact their business model, etc. But it's completely unacceptable. These reports have to be made public.
1: It does seem ironic that they would object to private information being revealed by the Information and Privacy Commissioners when the whole thing is about Life Labs losing people's <laughs> privacy information. <laughs>
6: Kind of an irony, isn't yeah. it? I mean, it's it's hilarious. I, I don't mean it's hilarious. It's it's most unfortunate. Um, Fifteen million people's personal health information was outed through Life Labs. I, that includes me. I use Life Labs here in Ontario for testing, medical testing, etc. And that's a lot of people. And so the fact that they would object to whatever they think is—I think they said they thought it was privileged and should remain confidential. Please, uh, kindly extend that courtesy to your customers. And uh, I'm I'm assuming they had weak security. Uh, They need to enhance it. They need, I mean, I'm dying to read the report, but of course we can't read the report until they get this resolved in court.
1: So what have we learned about what happened?
6: Very little. There there was obviously data breach. 15 million people's health records were outed through the hacker gained access to it. Who knows where that information is now? Invariably, it's a security-related breach. They didn't have the strength of the security that they needed. The data weren't encrypted. Uh, you know, I, I'm just inferring things here. So, I'm, I'm guessing, and this is a pure guess, that whatever was revealed by the commissioners must have revealed something that was so weak on the part of Life Labs that they are going to these lengths to prevent its disclosure.
1: Is this? Do you think this could work though for them by just it's deny deny deny? You know, subsist oh. like push it down, push it down. Does that mean that people will forget about it? Do they think
6: they're crazy? It'll do the exact opposite. Yeah, and I can't I can't believe that a judge is going to grant them uh, their request to conceal this information when both commissioners in BC and Ontario have written this very careful report. And uh, basically, that should be made public. The public have a right to know, especially all the individuals like myself, possibly yourself, whose health records yeah. have been breached and they're out there now.
1: Did you get one of the letters then from Life Labs telling you you were one of the people?
6: I did not. But uh, th- that surprised me as well because I happen to use the Life Labs here in Toronto uh, c- quite often. So I I was surprised that I got nothing from them. That was another question. Why haven't I been notified? Yeah. I've been tested at Life Labs extensively.
1: So, where's the, the, the federal way. government been on this then, Anne? Because this is a huge breach of the most personal information that people could possibly imagine.
6: You're absolutely right. Um, it is a provincial matter because in BC and Ontario. We in Ontario, for example, we have PHIPA, the Personal Health Information Protection Act, mm-hmm. that it would be in breach of. So the Ontario Information Privacy Commissioner would have jurisdiction. And uh, you know, Patricia Kazim, our commissioner here in Ontario, Michael McAvoy, your BC commissioner, they're both fabulous. So I know they've done an excellent job on this, and I'm dying to read the report. We just have to wait. I'm ref- I'm refraining from calling them and saying, like, could you just sneak me a copy? <laughs> which, which of course, I wouldn't do and they wouldn't do, but that's what I feel like doing.
1: I know. <laughs> so we have to wait, though, until then the court decides, no, Life Labs, you can't do this. It has to be released.
6: That's right. And then imagine it's going to be the publicity around this is going to be tenfold, well, yeah. much larger than it would have been if the commissioners just quietly released it.
1: Yeah. In the middle of a pandemic, I can imagine they could have fixed this problem quite a lot more (laughs) easily than they, again, shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, And thank you so much for this.
6: Uh, my pleasure, Kimmy. Thank you very much.
1: That's Anne Kavukian, Executive Director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre for three terms. She was also the Information and Privacy Commissioner for Ontario. And as you can tell, she is mad about this LifeLab hack. Remember, millions and millions of Canadians involved in this Your Health Information. A report has been done by the Privacy Commissioners in BC and Ontario, and LifeLabs has now gone to court to try to prevent that report from being made public or to be talked about there. So we'll be continuing to follow that story.